This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Judges 2:18-19. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. From Romans 8, verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, the word got out, but apparently somewhere along the line, you all heard that Rox and I this past week were in Hawaii. And I, I, I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> When, when we came here, you all said to us, make sure that you do everything that Alaskans do. <laughs> One of the things that we did when we were there, is, of course, uh, for those of you who've been, is we snorkeled. And um, I want to tell you just a really quick story about my snorkeling experience. I, I'm a pretty good swimmer, um, worked as a lifeguard in college, so I'm not afraid of the water or anything like that. But I, ha- I hadn't done much snorkeling, and uh, I borrowed some snorkeling gear from somebody here who said, oh, yeah, if you're going to such and such an island, you need to snorkel. So we get there, and you know, I'm putting the snorkel gear on, and it's really hard to snorkel when you, when you have facial hair because water uh, seeps up into your mask. I, you probably knew that already. At any rate, one day we're on a beach, and I had discovered that the key to snorkeling is, is that, you know, you gotta kinda ease yourself into the water slowly, you know, when the tide is not breaking over you because then you get all bruised and banged up as I have. Uh, but, so I, one, this particular day, I eased myself in, into about three, maybe four feet of water. And as I kinda ducked under the water and I was ready to push off to go into deeper waters so I could see all these amazing fish, Right at that moment, as my face went under the water, within three feet of me was staring at me a turtle this big. <laughs> and you should have been there to see. Have, can you imagine in your mind's eye a middle-aged, uh, pasty white guy in snorkel gear, uh, backpedaling on his, on his hands and, and, and his, like the crab walk, you know, that you, you do in school at some point? That's what I was doing. Because it scared the heck out of me. Um, you know, this far away, this turtle was right there. Now, how am I going to transition this into the sermon today? Um, we all have stories to tell. We, have all, we all have stories that God has uh, um, called us into. And they're much more important stories than the story 
that perhaps I just told you about my foibles uh, snorkeling, but they're important stories because there are stories, and they're, and they're not the same as the person who's sitting next to us. In fact, we find ourselves, and that was a pretty good transition, wasn't it? Uh, we find ourselves in the midst of a series of sermons that we're calling the story that we find ourselves in. And uh, what we have discovered over the last couple of weeks is that on the first uh, Sunday, a couple of weeks ago, I tried to paint a picture for you of this grand story of God among a couple of other options that are out there and why it's significant for us not only to, to, not to tell this story, but to know how this grand story of God relates to our particular smaller stories. And you uh, will remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that I said that the God uh, uh, that's part of the story that we find ourselves in is a God who creates, right? And a God who cares, companions, and a God who's involved in recreating. And then last week, even though I wasn't here, I had the opportunity to hear uh, Pastor Erica uh, talk about another aspect of the story that we find ourselves in, and that involves sort of the sin and disobedience of Adam and Eve and kind of that their failures before God and the result of that failure being that they um, were sent away, sent out of the garden. And if you were here last week, you will remember that Adam and Eve's experience didn't result in them getting sort of struck by lightning at that very moment, but that uh, God gave them time. And what a wonderful thought to think, even in our disobedience and even in our sin, uh, instead of whacking us and striking us dead with lightning, God gives us time too. And so today we find ourselves in, in uh, this story where we're going to be looking at another nuance of the story that we find ourselves in. And it's really uh, part of this grand story, as I've already said, of God's redemptive purposes in the world and also God's work and redemptive purposes in our lives. I mean, that, to be honest with you, that's uh, at this point in my life as a pastor, 20-some years doing this gig... Um, That's pretty much what it's about. If God's story doesn't somehow connect to the redemptive purposes of God in our lives, then I'm wasting my breath. And so here we're going to be looking at the book of Judges. And this is a story that I'm calling, at least for today, a story of small rebellions. Small rebellions. We saw the big rebellion last week with Adam and Eve. But this is a story of small rebellions. This is a story that we often skip over uh, because it reveals a lot about us, right? Sure, we might not be able to relate to being naked in the garden and eating the fruit of the tree so much, but we can relate to this theme that comes up in the book of Judges where over and over again, the people of God who have been given this marvelous gift from God screw up get distracted, lose their way, and eventually end up whining and crying and complaining back to God. And God does what? He hears them and he provides them with a leader who can help them get back on track. Uh, Isn't that our story? You don't have to raise your hand, but I think it probably is. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know someone who is dealing with a rebellious child? Anybody? Anybody? You know, and rebellion comes in a variety of ways. There's, again, you know, rebellion can be them, you know, 
calling you at 2 o'clock in the morning from jail. I mean, at one extreme, or it could be a kid who doesn't make their bed in the morning. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of rebellion in between. But, you know, we can relate to that, right? How many of you were rebellious at some point in your lives, yourselves? Okay. Some of you are being honest. I appreciate that. How many of you still find yourself rebellious now and then, just because? Oh, there's more honesty now. That's, that's kind of odd, really. You see, we, we all find ourselves in, uh, in the midst of small rebellions and the need to sort of break the cycle of sin that we have gotten ourselves into. So uh, the, the critical text that we read a moment ago basically describes to a T what I'm trying to suggest to you today, and that is that the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That, that kind of explains it all. And uh, just so you have kind of a really quick background uh, before we get into this, can you go back to the last slide, please? Thank you. Um, the, the background to Judges looks like this. It's the people who God uh, gives the land to, who kind of live in a state of bliss and obedience, uh, as I alluded a moment ago, kind of wander away, get distracted, do their own thing, forget about God, find themselves in sin, and so on and so on. God gives them a new leader. That's, the, that's what the book of Judges is about. So if, you, if you've never read it, it's really quite interesting book about that. And it's pretty earthy. It's pretty honest about reality. It's a book that essentially describes the process of the people of God entering into land that God had given them and then messing it up somehow. That, that in a nutshell, is what the book of Judges is about. And one of the critical components that you need to know about the book of Judges before we move on is that in this book we have a picture of a God who desires people, his people, to be faithful in some way, shape, or form. And like a kid with a new driver's license, the people of God, instead of being faithful to the desires of God, go out and and explore the world of freedom that came with having their own way to get there. You see, the book of Judges is named the book of Judges because it tells the story of a series of leaders or judges, that's what they um, refer to as a leader, that, that God gives to the people of God when they have discovered that they've swam out a little too deep to be able to find their way back to the shore. That's what the book of Judges is about. And so in this, in this book, we see this cycle of sin. And this is where we can move on to the next slide. The judges give us a picture, a, a clear picture, really, of this ongoing struggle that is taking place between the people of God and their God when it comes to living into the promises of God. That's what this book is about. Now, that's why it's a great book. That's why I love it, because that's my story. And, I, and if, if you're honest, that's probably your story, too. But let's take a look at this really quickly to see how this cycle of, of rebellion, if you will, small rebellions, uh, works. So here we have this, this circle of sin and redemption that uh, is fairly clearly um, representative of the story of the people of God from the book of Judges. And the first place that we find ourselves 
in, in this story is that the people have conquered their enemies and they've been invited into the land. Everything seems to be going fine. They're enjoying their freedom. They're enjoying their newfound relationships with God and others. They remember from where their good fortune has come. And they worship the God who brought them to the place that they currently find themselves in. That's the place of conquer, of conquering. And we too can live in that place. We too can be acutely aware that the good things that are taking place in our lives are, is a gift of God. We too can remember where our good fortune comes from. We too can be conquerors. Everything can click sometimes. Life seems to work that way. And then all of a sudden, we become complacent about this relationship, this responsibility that we have. And so the second stage in this cycle of sin that we see then is this, is this place of complacency. And, and, and this is the first step that the judges describe that the people of God take as they move from this place of having the world by the tail and all, all of a sudden everything goes wrong. Now things might still be clicking a little bit, but there are a few glitches here and there. They're not clicking quite as much as they once did. The, the people of God in this complacent place haven't forgot about God they haven't forgotten about the goodness of God. They've just been enjoying the blessings of God so much that they've forgotten from whom those blessings came. Right? So it's, it's subtle. You don't get lost wandering in the woods by taking three or four steps off the trail. You get lost when you take three or four steps off the trail and you take a different trajectory than, than the trail that you were walking on. Right? So this place of complacency is right there. It's close to this, to, to this life of conquering. But over time, slowly, almost imperceptibly, this first misstep in the cycle of sin, this cycle of rebellion, results in a lot worse that's yet to come. Well, once you've uh, made it to the step of complacency, it isn't far until the people of Israel get from complacency to the, to the step of compromise. In this one simple act of forgetfulness, it now has become more volitional. I don't just forget, I don't care. That's the nature of compromise. We are more deliberate about it, right? Yeah, just this one time, you know, I, I, can, I can get away with this. Besides, you know, look what so-and-so's doing. They're doing way worse than I am in this, in this regard. What was once a simple act of forgetfulness becomes more of a deliberate um, attempt to escape the, 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 the blessings of God. The cycle of compromise is when we make a decision to ultimately violate our core values, whatever they may be. Um, it isn't that we don't have a moral compass any longer. We, we don't go from complacency to compromise and become serial killers. That's not how it works. But it means that we've kind of set aside the compass 
that used to drive and direct us in our lives, and now we're paying attention to something else that's driving and directing our lives. And if you think that there's nothing else there, that's a big mistake. There always is. There always is. As I said a moment ago, it's like taking a step off the trail and, and the first two steps don't matter. But when you've been walking for an hour and you haven't been on the trail, the distance is pretty wide. And then from compromise, we see in this cycle of sin and rebellion in the book of Judges, um, the consequences of that compromise, of that complacency. And in the case of the people of God in the book of Judges, Israel becomes enslaved by the desires that they've been pursuing this entire time that are not godly desires, that are not desires that are going to result in them living in this state of conquering and, and, and uh, blessedness. You see, compromise always leads to consequences. The consequence of the people of God's compromise, that is, in this case, not completely removing the inhabitants of the land that they were about to enter into. That was the big compromise. That they began to practice some of the same religious practices of their new neighbors, which were pagan practices. They were, they were worshiping a god called Baal rather than the god of the Bible. The God that had, had redeemed them and saved them from, from Egypt was now being worshipped alongside this other series of gods. You see, what's interesting about this, this issue of con- consequences is that um, if we could go to conquer the consequences right away, we would all, of course, snap out of it, right? And we'd, we'd set our sail in the right direction. But that's not how it works, at least in my experience. You see, the people of God throughout the Bible, their number one act of disobedience is always to put something else in the place of God. It always is. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Adam and Eve put something else in the place of God. Genesis chapter 3, sorry. If you go through the Bible and you see uh, where the people of God mess up, it's almost always because they, they fall into this idolatry where they put something else in the place of God. And in the book of Judges, here we see it again, over and over and over again. You see, idolatry is not just this ancient practice that is exhibited when people you know, build little altars in the corner of one of their rooms in their house and bow down to them or whatever. That's not what idolatry is. Idolatry is when we place something else in front of the purposes of God. What are some of the the gods that we worship in our context? Well, our reputation. How much time do you spend in a week or a month making sure that that you look good for the people around you that are important to you? Your, your rep- reputation looks good, uh, either in the, the job or the place of work. We spend a lot of time bowing at the altar of our, of our reputations, don't we? Wait until someday you have your, re- your reputation snatched out from underneath you. <laughs> Believe me, it's no fun. We, we bow at the, at, the, at the idol of status in our community, in our Places of work. We, we bow at the idol of our families sometimes. Sometimes our families and their, their 
happiness and well-being is more important than our listening and being obedient to God. I'm not taking any kind of swipes here at the importance of raising a godly family. That's not my point. But you and I both know there's a point at which we use our families as excuses for not paying attention to God. Happens all the time. Our stuff. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say to me in the church, man, you know, we've got to go on vacation this year to such and such a place because we've got a timeshare there and we've got all this money invested in it and if we don't use it, then we lose it, sort of thing. Our stuff drives us and becomes an idol. Our children's success, either in school or in academics, is an idol that we have to be careful of. I have to be careful of. This last week, my son, Lars, my youngest son, who you all know because I've told you play soccer, turns out that this is a really strong year of soccer players, and the coach sent out a note to all the parents saying, I just want you to know that um, there's a pretty good chance that some players that made the team last year will not likely make the team this year. And my heart just sunk. Because my son is not a star player. He's a good player. And if you had a good tryout, he had a pretty good chance of making the squad. And if he had a bad tryout, there goes my opportunity to live vicariously through his athletic, uh, athleticism. He made it, by the way. You see, the consequences of our rebellion is that we lose sight of God and we are, are more enamored by that which is much smaller and much, uh, much less significant in the eyes of God than it should be. Than it, than it, than it, excuse me. Much less significant than what God wants us to be focused on. There we go. Well, in this cycle of sin, we go from consequences to contrition. Um, and contrition is when the people of Israel finally figure it out. They finally recognize that they've, they've wandered off the trail. And they say, holy cow, what do I do now? I'm lost. Right? That's what contrition is. Contrition is finding yourself in a place where you realize that you don't have the resources, you don't have the power, you don't have the emotional stability to deal with all of the issues, all of the sin, all of the sadness, all of the brokenness of your life. And at that point you say, God, I give up. That's what contrition is. And so the people of God get to this point. God hears their cries and he provides them with a leader who will take them back to their core values. Notice what God does not do. God does not make them jump through a whole bunch of hoops to sort of punish them for finding themselves in the weeds. God doesn't require them to, to win the immunity statue like that television reality show Survivor so that they can protect themselves the next time they screw up. God sees... Listen to me. God sees the predicament that the people of God finds themselves in and He responds with grace every time. Now, there are some people here today who get hung up with this aspect of the cycle of our sin because we mistakenly believe that surely there is a price that we must pay for our small rebellions. If I don't fix what's wrong in my life, there's no way that I can serve 
in the ministry of the church, if I don't have you know, my act together in this place, in this place, or this place, then surely God is not going to love me. Some of us get hung up with this because we mistakenly believe that there is a price that we must pay for our rebellion. Right? There is a price that we must pay for our rebellion. There is a price that must be paid. There always is. But we don't have to pay it. Did you hear that? There is a price that must be paid for our rebellion, but we don't have to pay it. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you've experienced the, the grace and forgiveness of another person? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a colleague. And it's just hard to receive that because you know you deserve something else. That's what contrition is. There's a price. But we don't have to pay it. That next stage is confession. And this is where Israel, of course, people of God are delivered from their sin. So from contrition, we see this cycle of sin and grace results in the, in the people of God finally recognizing that they are in a bad place. And, and, and let me just say this. We, we should not be surprised at God's response at our rebelliousness. We should not be surprised by this. Because God has been dealing with rebellious people since the very beginning of time. God is a God who, when God observes us, up to, the, up to our ears in the weeds, doesn't want to whack us, but wants to call us to be what God wants us to be. I like this quote that I ran into this past uh, week. <laughs> I don't want integrity to block my creative growth. Oliver Stone is a uh, director, producer of movies. I don't want integrity to block my creative growth. This is the mantra of our day. I don't want in integrity. I don't want doing what God wants to block my ability to experience all of the freedom and all that I can do in this life. Can you think of a better definition of sin than that? I do not want what I believe to impact to affect how I live. Now, none of us would, would admit to saying that, but we, we live like we believe that all the time. And it is the belief that somehow if we follow God or the Bible, then God is going to take away all of our fun that I think is part of the mistake that we sometimes find ourselves in. I don't know about you, but this is not my experience. 
In fact, I, I, I've come to experience the God of the Bible just the opposite from that. God is not interested in me catching, in catching me in my sin like some, some sheriff in heaven who's standing there with his six guns waiting to catch me sinning so he can give me zits or something like that. And, and if this is your view of God, then you are quite wrong about the character of God. The God of the Bible is, is not some grand spoil sport who, who takes pleasure in, in catching you in your moments of failure, your moments of brokenness, your moments of weakness. The God of the Bible is a God of astounding grace and compassion who desires the best for you. God sees us in our small rebellions. Instead of saying, sorry, you don't measure up, God says instead, in your acts of rebellion, all is not lost. I have not abandoned you to your selfish pursuits. I'm paying attention. I desire to be in relationship with you, come on. Come on. Human, uh, human sin, this, this propensity to be rebellious is, is, is stubborn. It is stubborn. But nothing compared to the grace of God. If you think sin is persistent, if you think sin is this nagging capacity to, to hold us down and hold us back from what we really know in our heart we want to become, it isn't half as persistent and willing to suffer in order to win its way. That's the Gospel, my friends. That's the God of the Bible. That's the story that we find ourselves in. A number of years ago, I, I, um, I got a speeding ticket. Did, did I tell you this story? I don't think I did. It's a great story. How much time do I have? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I got a speeding ticket. I was going, I don't know, 45, 50, and a 25, something like that, you know. No big deal. Uh, Lars, if you're listening to this right now, do not do that. Uh, and so I, I thought, you know, his, his speedometer thing was probably wrong. I'm going to go to court and at least get my fine lowered. And to make a long story short, I, uh, I overslept the day of my court date. And uh, so I showed up in court about 45 minutes late, hoping that they hadn't yet called my name. And in fact, they had, which what happens in the legal system is if you aren't there for your court date, you, there's automatically a bench warrant that is put out for your arrest. And so I went to the court clerk and I said, hey, I, I overslept, I'm sorry, I was on vacation, didn't get, you know, I was on a different time cycle, blah, blah, blah. She goes, there's a bench warrant for your arrest, the only thing that you can do is go turn yourself in to the local um, police department. And I was really mad about this, because I was there, I was just a little late. In, in, my, in my rebelliousness, I, I just didn't get there quite on time. So as I walked away from the court clerk, I said, okay, fine. If you don't have time to, 
to, to help, help me, and I'll get around to turning myself in whenever I want. So I drove for a number of weeks with a bench warrant for my arrest. And uh, uh, the, a youth retreat was coming up in a, in a week or so, and it was my job to pick up the speaker at the airport and drive him to the, to the youth retreat. It, it's not what you think. It's actually better than what you think. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I, I don't know this guy. I'm going on one of these, you know, remote roads where police and little towns love to sit there and catch you going one mile out the over the limit. And as soon as they put my name into their little computer, bingo, warrant for his arrest. I can see it now. I'm leaning against the car, you know, being fritz. This is what's going through my mind. So I, I picked him up at the airport. Let's just say his name was Bob. I don't know what his name was. I said, do you mind... Um, could we stop at the, at the police department just real quick so that I can turn myself in? There's a warrant out for my arrest. <laughs> and he kind of looks at me and he goes, yeah, this should be interesting. <laughs> so I walk in, I walk up to the front desk of the police department in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, and I put my hands up like this and I say, um, there's a warrant out for my arrest, and I'm here to turn myself in so I can pay my fine. And no sooner than I had done that, behind me, two huge police officers come up and start escorting me to a, uh, to a room behind a, a big steel door. And there, I left in my car, sitting out on the street, this guy, Bob, who I just met, because I just picked him up at the airport. And so behind the door, they proceeded to fingerprint me, take my mug shots, and uh, then I pulled my checkbook out of my pocket and I said, I, I'm going to pay my fine uh, to the bail bondsman. And, and so they brought the bail bondsman in and I was about to write the check. And he goes, oh, I don't take checks. I go, what? I don't have 150 bucks in cash. Sorry. And so we figured it out. Um, they brought the guy that I had just picked up at the airport in. I wrote him a personal check in a city that he'd never been to before, I gave him the keys to my car and said, here is my bank branch, which is the only place you're going to be able to cash this check because you don't have a local ID. And I sent him off to come back with $150 to bail me out of jail. See, I told you, this is a great story. And uh, a few minutes went by, and so they got done uh, fingerprinting me, taking my mugshot, and I was just trying to make small talk with the guy, the jail, the police officer who's doing all this. And so I sat there and I said, so I bet you don't see a lot of clergymen in here, do you? And he looks at me and he says, you'd be surprised. <laughs> well, that day he didn't put me into his cell. He could have. And I sat there and I waited for my friend to come back and I paid my bail and we drove off to camp, and I sat through the very first uh, presentation made by Bob, who I picked up at the airport only an hour or so before, and these were the first words out of his mouth. He says, I don't know what this week of camp is going to be like, but if it's anything like what I've experienced so far, we're going to have a very interesting time. This grand story that we have been talking about the past few weeks is, is a story of a God 
who wants to woo us from our small rebellions. And, and we have discovered, unlike some of the other stories that are being told out there, that this story speaks to the very heart of our brokenness. The story of God doesn't take pleasure in our pain or, or our propensity to repeat the cycle of sin over and over. The story of God is about a God who makes a way for us and makes a way for our hearts to be renewed by the power of the cross. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this, and we read it earlier, who can separate us from Christ's love? Can trouble or hard times or harm or hunger or not getting to your court date in time. Can nakedness or danger or war, it is written because of you we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep to be killed. No, in all these things we will do even more than when we owe it all to Christ who has loved us. I am absolutely sure that not even death or life can separate us from God's love. This is the kind of story that we find ourselves in. Don't let me go on vacation because I get really wound up. Now, I don't know what story you find yourself in this morning. Perhaps you arrived here and things are clicking, uh, clicking pretty good for you. And you've been enjoying those, those moments of, of a conquering life that, that accompany those who've recognized that they're really not in control of their life. God is. And if that's you, God bless you. Watch out, but God bless you. Perhaps you found your here, yourself here this morning in worship and, and, and you find yourself in the middle of this cycle of small rebellions that I have described for you and this fits you to a T. And I've got good news for you if that's who you are. God is not surprised by the circumstances that you find yourself in and He has made a way for you in Jesus Christ to break the cycle of small rebellions in your life. All you have to do is ask. Maybe you're here today and you believe that the cycle of your rebellion is so bad that there is no way in heaven or earth that you will ever be able to find your way into the shallow water again. I want you to know that there is no such place. There is no place that is beyond the scope of God's desire to embrace you in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your brokenness. There's no place that God will not go. In a moment, we're going to come to the table and you are going to be invited to participate in this very ancient uh, act. And I want you to know that this is not a table for saints. It is a table for sinners. Sinners like you and like me. The table is evidence that there is a God that is not satisfied with wherever we find ourselves. It is evidence of a God who's done something about it. Did you hear that? God has done something about the predicament that you find yourselves in. And so I invite you, whoever you are, to come to this table to experience the remarkable love and grace 
of God. Don't worry if you find yourself in a certain place of rebellion right now. Let God take care of that. So come to this table not because you must, but because you may. Come to this table not because you've got your life all figured out. Come to this table because you need God's embracing love more than you've ever needed it before. Come to this table not because you somehow deserve it, but that in your coming you may receive the ever-expansive love and grace and forgiveness that God has to offer each and every one of us. Come to this table. If you find yourself living in the midst of your own little, small rebellions, and allow the faithfulness of God and exhibited in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to walk with you starting today. Let's pray together.